Hey guys, welcome back to the D Fitzel podcast. Today I have an interview with Jordan Lips. He is a very experienced online coach. And you know, we dive into all topics training wise, programming, deloads, you know, cardio, all these things. So I'm excited to get into it. Um, if you guys enjoy this episode, you know what to do. Leave me a five star rating and review so that I can keep producing such content for you guys. All right, without any further ado, let's get into it. We have Jordan today um, joining us. So super excited uh, for this uh, podcast. Um, maybe let's just you know start by you, know, you can give us like a little introduction about yourself um, and you know how you got into the coaching space. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Jordan. I am a certified MNU certified nutritionist and have some other certifications. But who really cares at this point? I feel like certifications are they're not useless in terms of getting them, but they're useless in terms of like rattling off the ones that you have. And so. Um, I'm an online coach. I've been a personal trainer for 10 years before that. I owned a gym for a very brief time. And it was through my hatred of, of owning the gym that I went into online coaching. Um, I really didn't like owning a gym. And so my outlet for, for still being able to work with individuals was online. And I realized very quickly that I loved that a lot, a lot more than what I was doing. Um, and so just before the world kind of shut down, um, I moved my entire business online and my girlfriend, now fiance, moved across the country. We were both living remote or working remotely. And so um, it's been a really cool, really, obviously, other than the world being shut down, it's been a really cool, really fun three years business-wise, really enjoying working with uh, people on whatever it is, nutrition or clinical goals, or they want to get you know more muscular or stronger. Um, and so now that's what I do. I work with clients one-on-one. I also have a group programming service, which I'm really passionate about right now. It's super fun. Um, so more of like a low cost option if you want hypertrophy style programming for pretty cheap. Um, that is something that I'm really enjoying right now too. Awesome. Um, I want to like dive, I guess, a little bit into your own, like, you know, training background, your own journey and, you know, what got you so into this um, coaching space altogether, right? Because it takes your own journey before you kind of get there. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of boring in a sense, in the sense that like I think we all a lot of people come from a similar background of like they were once had some sort of athletic pursuit, and so I played soccer as a kid, and and I and I thought that that was going to be something that I was going to do with my future and play in college and all that stuff, and turns out I was good, but not that good, and so you know at some point I needed some sort of physical outlet that was not soccer anymore, and I think I. I Honestly, if we're being honest, there was a point where I stopped playing a different sport. I stopped playing basketball and I went to the gym for the first time with a friend and I got some newbie gains. And I think that happens to all of us. When you begin training, you are hyper, you're hyper responsive to that training stimulus and you grow really fast. And it was also at a point in my like educational career, I guess, where I didn't really like school. I think, I don't think any like 16 year old kid, 17 year old kid likes school, but, um, I don't know. I think it was the first place, the gym being the first place where I was really able to correlate the effort that I was putting in with the result that I was getting. And it was like the first time in my life where I really felt like if I just go and work and be consistent, I get the result. And there was no subjectivity to it. There was nobody like in school. I, I, you know, maybe it was just like a rebellious teenager, but I felt like everyone was against me and I felt like teachers didn't like me. Or when I did got a bad grade on something, I felt like they were after me. 
But when it came to the coming to the gym, it was like, if I go to the gym, if I lift the weights, if I spend the time, if I eat the food, if I eat the protein, whatever I thought when I was 17, you get the result. And so I've always fallen in love with that. Where like, we are all different genetically in the sense that we're going to grow muscle at different rates. You might have better or worse muscle building genetics than somebody else. But even the person who has the best genetics in the world, the person who has the worst genetics in the world, they still build muscle the same way. So we all have the same opportunity to go after building muscle. And the the plan of how to do that is the same. And so that's always been really fun for me because even if, you know, even if there are other things in your life that aren't perfect and, and, and there are things that you would change, like this is something that you don't have complete control over everything all the time, but there is, this is one thing that you do. It's not, it's not terribly difficult or it's not terribly different than if you do the work and you put in the hours and you eat the food and you sleep the hours, like you'll grow muscle. And, you know, obviously there's things that you cannot control in there as well. But I did feel that it was something that um, I had some real connection between the effort I was putting in and the the benefit I was getting out. Cool. Um, so, you know, like just based on your content that, you know, you put out, then you put out a lot of like things. Okay. I, I obviously follow you. So a lot of things like, you know, programming wise and, you know, specific movements and everything. I really just want to like pick your brain and just hear from you. And like, like, I'm going to let you go off on it. Like, you know, like what your approach to programming is, um, you know, what, I, I mean, like maybe things you've changed over the years because you've been in the industry for very long, right? So maybe even some some things that you feel that, you know, when you started out, what you were doing and then now, you know, what, you know, what you are leaning towards more now. Sure, definitely. When I first started, I didn't know anything. And and just like everybody, I had no clue what I was doing, you know, as and we all skip past that because that's boring. I think we all go through that part where I was in the gym for way too long, I was doing way too many sets. I was going to failure all the time. My technique wasn't very good. Um, you know, I was doing all the muscles and then I was doing just one muscle every workout and I would go to the gym twice a day sometimes. And so really just w- did a lot of not great things. And then once I thought I started to learn more, um, I was as a personal trainer doing a lot of random workouts. Um, back when I was like maybe 20, 21, 22, and I, my personal training business was really picking up, I was just doing random workouts with people. And like, they would come in for the gym and I would just do a random made up workout on the spot. And it wouldn't even be a random workout. Like you might think of a workout today where it's like three sets of that, four sets of this, three sets of that. It was just fucking bouncing back and forth between random exercises around the gym nonstop. And wasn't really thinking about anything in my eyes at the time. If you just took the average person and you got them to work hard, that mm. this this element of continuity of needing to do the same thing each time you come in the gym, like that didn't mean anything to me at the time, even though, of course, I was doing that in my own training. I wasn't, uh, for some reason, wasn't treating my my clients in the same way. And I was like, oh, they'll just, they'll be fine because they're, you know, they're newbies and they can just do whatever and it'll be fine. Um. That's obviously my opinion on that has changed. I think I wasted a lot of people's time or at least didn't get them the best results that they could have gotten. There is an element of of fun that I do stand behind that it was fun, I'm sure. And some of these people probably wouldn't have come to the gym if it was so structured. Maybe they enjoyed the fact that we were doing different stuff. And and, that, and that's cool. And I think that that's all part of my journey as a coach is realizing that like if you, if you pay attention to people's content, you could probably tell who who the target audience is, or you can probably tell which people have worked with like the average person. Mm. Um, Because I think that there's an element of fun and emotional enjoyment and consistency that is relevant for the masses. 
Um, we need, you know, as a planet, we are not healthy people. And so if we can get people to just enjoy what they're doing a little bit more, um, then that I think is irrelevant, is definitely relevant. Um, but there's always this like fun versus optimal that comes up against each other. It's like how much of our training is going to be just because you like it, how much of it is going to be because it's what's optimal. And so when I think of my style of programming these days, I've spent the last several years making up for being a bro, so to speak, in my first several years and really diving into the to the science, really learning a bit more about biomechanics and programming and different stimuli and 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 some of the uh, the the biology and in doing so, I've kind of upgraded the the type of programming that I do, but I still think that when it comes to programming for the average person, we need to look at what's going to get them in the gym 150 to 200 times a year and what's going to get them to work hard. Um, every so often, I'll have somebody comes in my group programming and they question something, which I love. I'm I'm so for it. It's totally cool. I'm happy to have those conversations. But sometimes there's there's a misunderstanding that like you need the perfect workout and you need the most individualized workout and you are a special butterfly. Um, and at the end of the day, if you look at a program that has enough of the the big rocks, you have enough sets, you have decent exercises, and you're close enough to failure, you're hitting like 90% of what you need. And so when it comes to my programming these days, I'm certainly into the nitty gritty. I love discussing what is physiologically optimal from a biomechanics, from a technique perspective. That is something very important to me. But I also think that what's missing in the industry right now is a discussion of what might be optimal, but also how much this thing matters. I think we miss out a lot of times. So if somebody asks me, hey, Jordan, how's my technique on this RDL? And I maybe want them to, to tuck their chin a little bit or bend their knee a little bit more. That's fine. But I think it's very important to have these discussions with people about how important some of this stuff is. Because I think there's a lot of people right now not enjoying their training because they're so caught up in trying to perfect their technique when their technique is actually pretty solid um, and they would enjoy their they're training a lot more if they felt like they were doing it right. So that's a side tangent for me, but um, would it help if we went into like basic principles for programming? Is that something that would be interesting? Yeah, sure. We can, we can do, we can go down there. Yeah. I think, I think the, the big, the big discussions for me, let's say I'm taking on a one-on-one client is just a starting with how many days they can realistically go to the gym. People want to talk about what's the best split. I want to talk about how many days you can get to the gym first. Um, If that's three, if that's four, if that's five, Um, I've coached hundreds, probably in the thousands of people in the last five or six years. And I, it's very rare. I have somebody training five days a week. That isn't because five, if, if somebody put a gun to my head and they're like, I want to grow the absolute best. This is my number one priority in my whole life how many days should I train? Probably five. Hmm. And if that, and that is, if you are, you have no kids, you have no sleep contraindications, your sleep is perfect. Your nutrition is perfect. This is the number one goal in your entire life, probably five. But I think that there's a diminishing return, a big diminishing return after four and days per week doesn't even tell us a whole lot because it depends what you're doing on those days. And so from a time allocation, I'll first want to talk to a client about how many days they can train and then how long they can spend in the gym each time, you know, are you like, Hey, I can do, you know, four times 60 minutes or three times 75 minutes, or, you know, what is realistic for you to be consistent with? Uh, and I think that's an important question to ask because some people will Google a program. It's like five day program and then they can't do all five days and they feel like a failure. And so find a program that really does account for what time you could really spend in the gym. Um, and then have it reflect very generally what you like do or what you prefer to do. And when I say prefer, I mean, what muscles do you want to grow? If you're someone who's like very concerned with growing their upper body, then don't go on a program that's glute focused, you know, 
Um, and so how many days being trained, what's important to you. And then from there, we're going to pick a decent amount of volume, decent amount of sets uh, in a generally hypertrophy rep range and generally relatively close to failure. I think most, it's funny because it, when I was first doing this group program, I would, I did a bunch of R and D where I looked at a lot of the top programs that were out there, like people that I really looked up to people that you and I probably both know that we both follow. And, and I downloaded 50 programs. I was like, I need to see what everyone else is doing. They're got to be doing this crazy stuff. Yeah. And I just realized that like, once you can get people into the ballpark of enough sets into the ballpark of good enough exercises in the ballpark of the right rep range, maybe not North of not spending a lot of time, you know, outside of six to 15 ish reps, you know, if you can get people in the ballpark, that's what people need. They need to get the baseline stuff to a level of good enough. If you can get people to do good enough sets, good enough exercises, good enough amount of reps, good enough proximity to failure, um, most people are going to get what they want out of out of lifting. Most people aren't looking to be Mr. Olympia. And so if you can get people to do the the like good enough across a long period of time, most people get where they want they want to go. Cool. So, I mean, when, you know, I mean, it's a lot different when you're coaching online um, versus in person, right? And, you know, like, I mean, a couple of things that like, I just have, you know, I just want to pick your brain a little bit about is one would be like, you know, technique and, and form, which you kind of like already mentioned just now. Um, I mean, it's something that is important to also keep a look out on, right? Um, and, I, and like you said, you know, sometimes people tend to, you know, overfixate on it. Uh, and sometimes good is enough. Uh, so I want to talk about that, but also, um, you know, just in terms of like loads and like intensity, like, you know, how, I mean, a question that I always get from clients is, you know, how, like, should I be increasing weight? And, you know, how do I know how much I should be increasing? Should I increase, like, I almost want to get them to the point where they are like self-sufficient, but at the same time, you know, it's not something that, you know, people that are completely new really know how to do themselves, you know? Yeah, that's such a good, that's such a good point. Um, and that's easier in person, right? Is what you're saying. It's easier when you're like with them. So how, how to, how to communicate that. I think it's an, it's a moment of, like you said, trying to keep in mind that your goal is to make the client self-sufficient. And so how can you, what tools can I give them so that they can course correct themselves? What tools and skills can I teach them so that they can know in their own brain, should I go up here? Should I do this? And so the first thing is, is teaching some sort of way of quantifying how hard something is. So like using RIR or RPE, um, which the research shows at first we suck at, like we're not good at like people. If you have a client who comes in, you teach them RIR for the first time. They have no idea. They think it's a two. It's really a 10. You know, they think they're close to failure. They're really not. And that's okay. But we have to start somewhere. We have to quantify somewhere because if someone's like, Hey, should I go up and wait? Um, a lot of times, a really easy baseline answer is, can you go up and wait in the target reps with good technique without overblowing the RIR that we want? And so that's a mouthful for somebody who's new to all this stuff. But I think a good way of communicating that, and so this happens every time in the group, people will ask me about their technique and occasionally someone will be like, hey, you know, did it look heavy? Or do you think I could do more? And there's an element of this person hasn't actually thought because I know if they thought about the question they're asking, they know that I, I can't answer that from where I'm sitting. Yeah. Um, and so often I'll say, I don't know, can you, you know, like there's some element of self-exploration here that's important. And so I think um, teaching clients to understand that you can't be that person who can tell them if they can go up. Now you can give your intuition, 
And as a coach, you can definitely say, hey, it looks like this was really good. And if you, and, and so it's important for me to get the data of how hard do you think this was? If you told me it was a 10 out of 10, then I'm not going to, I'm not going to encourage you to be like, yeah, just go up another 25 pounds. If you say it's an eight and the technique was perfect, then I might say, okay, yeah, you can, you can probably do more. And so it's your, it's your job as a coach to give your informed opinion of what you think, but also curtail that with, I don't know, only you're going to know. And sometimes you go for it, you go for it. And maybe sometimes it is too heavy or you don't get as many reps as you thought you were supposed to, or you didn't hit the rep range that the coach prescribed you. Um, and so sometimes having those, those discussions of, I don't know, here's my best guess. And here's how you can find out. And that, that here's how you can find out is, can you do eight good reps with good technique without, you know, adding in momentum or swinging or body English or other muscles that we don't want to be working. And so I think actually communicating that you don't know, but here's the things that you would look out for would be the, my best, my best advice as far as discussing that with the client, because you can do technique in a form video. We could talk about that hundred percent. Um, but, and we can even look at effort, you know, can, can we see the concentric rep speed slowing down? If you're, if you, if I'm seeing someone do curls and mm. the first rep and the last rep are moving at the exact same pace and they tell me that that was a set to failure. I know that that's not true. Yeah. Failure will always come with some form of slowing in the concentric part of the rep. So like the way up on a bench press, the way up on a push up, the way up on a curl. And so I can assess relative effort sometimes. Um, but I think it, giving the client the tools of like what to look out for, it's like, you know, you know, framing it like gun to head, could, how many more could you do? Yeah. I think a lot of people are, can, don't know at first what the difference between this was hard and it was so hard. I couldn't do another rep is. And so I think the, the last thing I'll say with this word vomit here is that <laughs> periodically going to failure is yeah. so, so, so important for yeah teaching them what that feels like, but also showing them what numerically from an, I did this many number of reps and sets um, or reps at this weight, showing them what they're capable of. So I think that that pushing your client to periodically, not all the time, but periodically go to failure is so important to teach them what that feels like emotionally, mentally, pain in the muscle wise, but also like objectively from a numbers perspective, they're like, wow, when I went all the way to failure, I got 15 pushups where I was doing eight, nine, and 10, and I was asking you how hard it was, instead of asking me how hard it was, go until you literally fall on, you know, until you can't do another one. And then we know, and then we know. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, I guess like one thing that like I tried to do before was, you know, for like, you know, like isolation movements, like sort of get them to go all the way to failure and then re like report back to me how many they reached. And then if they managed to do like 25, then we know that, you know, maybe they, that they're clearly <laughs> way past that and they can definitely increase weight. Right. Yeah. That's a great idea. And your, your, your decision to do that with isolation movements or like high stability movements, whether it's a machine or something safe, um, something where they're not likely to in include other muscles, you know, like if you tell someone who's never lifted to take a set of lateral raises to failure, they'll do a thousand because after the first 10 that have really good form, there's like a bunch of swinging and, you know, body movement. And so you're right. I, I like how you said that where you're like, Hey, let's take this highly controlled exercise to failure where, you know, whether it's a machine or something that they're just less likely to mess up when they get into those high degrees of fatigue. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, I mean, I can dive into like so many different things. So I have like so many questions for you. Um, 
like let's maybe go into like a bit of like deloads. Um, I guess I have a question on, you know, whether or not you feel like deloads are even really necessary for like a newbie. Um, and you know, how do you like you know program that? Yeah. So that in that context of a newbie, I think if we just look at what is what would make a deload necessary is let's say you let's say deloads were not necessary. Let's live in that world for a second. What would happen is you would continue to adapt to training forever. Um, and the truth is, if you are continuing to adapt to training forever, then you don't need to deload. Now, <laughs> continuing to adapt to training forever would mean that week to week, and generally week to week, maybe not every single week, but generally you are doing more. You're able to progressively overload. And so when I think of newbies, they are more likely to be able to do that for longer without running into a situation where they need to take a step back because they're not progressing. The truth is that we we deload mostly because the more consecutive weeks of training that you have for the same style of training, the more training you have to do to continue to grow. So like the threshold of what's needed to continue pushing a certain adaptation, that threshold continues to go up. It goes up by a tiny bit. It doesn't go up by a lot week to week. It doesn't go a lot by mezzo to mezzo. It doesn't even go up that much over the lifetime, but it does technically go up. And that's why we tell people try and progress week to week because we know that as you continue to train, you continue to need to do more to get the same result. It's like just a poor analogy is like when you have caffeine, you become you become desensitized over time. You need more caffeine to get that same stimulus. And a deload is like taking a week off of caffeine so that you can resensitize to that caffeine and you can get the benefits, you know, more of the benefits on the back end of that. And so when we look at newbies, newbie is like somebody who's never had caffeine before. Mm. If someone's never had caffeine before, it's going to be a long time where they before they really need to take some time off of caffeine to resensitize because they are so damn sensitive. They can probably go years before running into a point of, I need to take a break from caffeine because you know it doesn't affect me anymore. Yeah. Um, but when we look at training, it's interesting because deloads serve, when we talk physiologically, that is the point of a deload. It's mostly because you're carrying so much fatigue and you're yeah. so... Uh, desensitized to the training that you need to do such hard training in such a high state of fatigue. Let's take a step back, drop fatigue, resensitize and start again. It's like one step back for two steps forward. A newbie is probably going to have to do that much less often. However, I've been, I've been training for uh, 15 years, let's say. And in 15 years, I have never, ever gotten to the point where I've stopped progressing. Where like, and better, better said, it's almost like you don't even need to deload when you stop progressing. You really need to deload when you like start regressing. When you get to a point where you're like, you have back-to-back workouts where you either miss a couple of reps or you have to drop the load quite a bit. Um, that is a real good, clear objective signal of you've overtrained or you're over, overreached, overtraining, whatever word we want to use. Yeah. Um, I've been doing this 15 years. It's never happened to me ever. Uh, it's not that I progress every week forever, but I never get to a point where I'm like, wow, I dropped four reps on this because I'm so toasted. I'm so fatigued. Um, but I need deloads regularly. So how can I need deloads regularly? But I just said that I never stop. That never happens to me. It's because there are other things that cause you to need a deload. There's psychological things that cause you to need a deload. There's fatigue that you're carrying that doesn't manifest in your performance. Maybe it manifests in a low motivation to train or a high degree of irritability. 
mm. or even like joint pain. Um, and so when we look at a newbie, they might have other reasons they want to deload. Honestly, deloading for me also is so important psychologically from a motivation standpoint that like, it's like dieting. It's like take, doing a diet with no diet breaks, which is fine, by the way. You don't need diet breaks. We we have we learned are not physiologically necessary. But it's like it's like running a marathon without knowing where the water break stops are. Sometimes the deload is nice because it can compartmentalize your efforts, knowing that there's hey, I have to do these five weeks, these six weeks, and then I take a nice relaxing deload. And my effort over those five or six weeks might be might be higher than if I was just going to open ended train into oblivion for weeks and weeks and weeks on end without ever taking a break. And so do newbies need to deload probably less often if the programming is good. If you have a deload, if you have a newbie who's going to failure all the time, training way more than they should, they need to deload too. But if you have a, a well-designed program for a beginner, they probably don't need to deload um, for a long time, most likely. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't. And it probably doesn't even mean that they won't. Most people that we're talking about that are like new to training probably also have a vacation yeah. once or twice a year. They, yeah. they miss a workout. They have a long weekend off. They get sick, yeah. you know? And so usually life throws a deload into you at some point. And so I think that for a newbie, it's probably less of a reason to deal it because you can probably just, you have a long time because before you really need to resensitize because you're so sensitive already. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't. I think breaking it up into little chunks makes it a little bit more palatable for people, um, enjoyable. It's usually... I'll tell you, I love my deload week. It's time that for me to do other things, occupy my brain with other things, you know, run different errands. I have, I have like four hours of my life back for, to do other things. And so um, whether we can discuss the physiological benefits, I think there's also like practical life benefits as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, when I first started taking it myself, um, it was because I really reached a point where like I was really, really toasted. And I could really feel it and I needed to, needed to like back off. Uh, but you're totally right. Like life definitely like throws us like, you know, just deloads in itself. So I guess like kind of related to that, do you like, you know, like to take the approach where, I mean, probably it's a mix of both, but I mean, would it be like, you know, already pre-planned and, and also at the same time kind of like judging based on like how they go, um, you can schedule that as, as, it, as it happens. Yeah. So I think, I think, um, if you were looking to get the, if you were, if you were my client and you're trying to be a pro bodybuilder, I think we would lean more on auto-regulating, meaning just taking it on on the fly to see how it goes. Because mm. for you, there is no corner. There's nothing, there's no box. We need, we can't check. We need to get every ounce of muscle gain for you that is available to you in the, in the span of the year, because yeah. you have a competition coming up and we can't miss on any ounce of muscle, any gram of muscle. Um, and so you probably would do what's called auto-regulating to some degree where you would, you know, it's funny cause I don't even believe what I'm saying, to be honest. I don't <laughs> even know if, I don't even know if we would do that. I think, I think theoretically you would lean towards that side, but I prefer to do a combination of the two, like you said, where you're pre-planning a deload based yeah. on what you already know about yourself from training. So I personally know that right around that like sixth week of training. I don't know if I've ever done six consecutive weeks of hard training, um, mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally. And I just know that on average, I train maybe on average, a little closer to failure. So six weeks, again, six weeks of training doesn't tell us anything. How many sets are you doing? How many days are you go to the gym? How close to failure are you doing? What exercise are you doing? What's your nutrition like? So I know for me, when I factor in my 
those constraints for me that somewhere around five, four to six weeks for me is where I hit an emotional roadblock where I'm like really struggling to make progress in the workout. I probably still could make a tiny bit of progress, but I'm, like you said, pretty mentally, emotionally toasted, pretty burnt out, low motivation to train, excited to take a break, um, you know, maybe a smidge of irritability. And for me, the biggest symptom that comes on faster and more tangible than anything is sleep disturbances. So a little bit of like cortisol dysregulation where I'm getting up earlier in the morning and I'm like awake at four o'clock in the morning. Like when that, that starts to come on for me, which I think happens for a lot of people who train hard for many weeks on end. Uh, for me that immediately I know I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm out. And so I think over time you learn, yes, you want to put in some of some of this auto-regulation where you're taking it on the fly. But I think if you've trained for two years, three years, four years, five years, you kind of know after this many weeks of hard training, this is normally in the ballpark of when I start to burn out. So instead of just waiting until I feel like shit, I just will take the deload just before that. Like I hate the idea of, yeah, we'll just wait until you feel like shit to deload. Like what? If I'd rather you, I would rather you never get to that point, even if it means missing out on four workouts that you could have built muscle on, I'd rather you always be in a state of enjoying your training. If we consistently, every mesocycle, take you all the way to the point of, I feel like crap and I'm totally burnt out. If you get there every single time, there's probably some negative connotation that's built that, that maybe you, maybe you spend three to five days not feeling well. If we can save you those three to five days by just deloading a little bit earlier, I would take that all the time. And so um, I find that that's some, some, you know, it's, it's interesting because if you, if you get to the point where your deload is scheduled and you feel like, you know, and let's say you were my client, your deload is next week. And I, and I say to you, okay, but do you think you could go into the gym next week, do your workouts and progress on them? And you said, yeah, I think I could we might go in and do that and, you know, deload the following week. We might, or we just note that. And I say, okay, you know, after five weeks of training, she felt like she could probably go in and do a little bit more. So maybe we either pre-plan our next program to be six weeks, or maybe over those five weeks, she can do a little bit more volume, or maybe over those five weeks, you know, we could do a little bit closer to failure, or we could pick exercises that had a little bit you know, are a little bit more stimulative, even if they're more fatiguing. And so maybe we extend the mezzo because that's the feedback you're giving. Or maybe we look at, could you have been training harder this whole time? Like how come after five weeks, you don't even feel the least bit of fatigue. If someone's like, oh, I'm good. I I don't need to deload. I'm like, it's been five weeks of hard training. You don't, you don't feel anything like building up. You don't feel any like fatigue building up or even like small irritability or lower motivation to train or soreness or joint pain or like whatever. You don't feel any of this stuff. Like they're like, no, I feel great. I'm like, why do you feel great? You know, have you been training hard enough? And so I, that's at least, I'm not saying people who don't need to deal in that context aren't training enough, but it's at least something that we should ask. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, like I have like a lot of like clients that, you know, work out from home. Um, and, you know, I think that tends to also be, maybe they have just like less access to like equipment um, but I just want to like hear your thoughts, you know, like what, how would you like, you know, just make sure that, you know, even people that are, you know, training with like limited equipment, how do you still like try to progress them, progress them in the gym? And, you know, at what point, if ever, would you, you know, suggest that, you know, they maybe switch to another gym with, which has a bit more access to equipment so that they can continue that, you know, progression. Yeah, yeah that definitely happens a lot. I think that there's, um, what I'll say is it depends on the equipment that you have. If you have dumbbells and bands, 
like the less equipment you have, the sooner you'll grow out of it. Now, what does growing out of it mean? Does it mean physiologically you need more slash better equipment to keep making gains? Or does it mean emotionally and enjoyment wise, Mm. it'll be best for you? So I think if you have enough load, and what I mean is if you have unlimited amount of poundage in dumbbells and barbells and a bench, you could probably never need to go anywhere. You could still make great gains and you could, most people could get as bad as jacked as they want to be with just barbell, dumbbell and an adjustable bench. Um, But emotionally and enjoyment wise from a redundancy, from doing the same stuff, even the best programming, even the you, you know, mixing it up with changes in tempo and supersets and drop sets and just making it as fun as possible with the limited equipment, you're probably going to get a client who at some point, and again, it differs for everybody, is going to feel like they're yearning for a change. Yeah. And so I, what I would say is it's likely that you will run into a psychological need for more before a physiological need for more. Uh, I think I have some clients who've been training at home, dumbbells, some, some just dumbbells and a bench. And Yes, they will run out of, physiologically, at some point, they're going to need more. But if they, if you have unlimited poundage, chances are, yeah, it's not perfect because you're going to miss some types of movements that you'd really want, whether it's like stuff that you can only do with the machines really well, like knee flexion extension stuff. So like leg extension, ham curl, those are tough to mimic at home. Yeah. Um, vertical pulling is tough if you can't do chin-ups, right? Uh, you know, if you can't do chin-ups, how well are we going to do really good vertical pulling for upper back lat work? Um, but I think most people could get, I use the word community pool jacked. What I mean is that like people could get like in relatively good shape, enough good shape that people would be happy with the average person would be happy with without going into a gym. But I'm with you. I almost always, it will be a client gets their program and they're like, man, I got Bulgarian split squats again. And it's like, and they just were like, shit, if I just had a leg press, this would be awesome. And so it's not like I'm not making progress on Bulgarian split squats anymore because, you know, I've only been able to do split squats and squats for the last eight months. It's more of like, ugh, you know, I have, I have squats again. You know, even if you do your best job to program, chances are, depending on how ambitious the person's goal is and how much they're enjoying their training, they'll probably yearn for a gym at some point. And, you know, I mean, okay. I mean, things like, you know, like barbells and stuff, right? I mean, it's still relatively technical. Like at what point do you, you know, even if they go to the gym, right? And, and they go to like a big box gym or whatever, they have access to that, right? How how comfortable, like, you know, are you to like, you know, just like, you know, teach them that and, you know, especially when it's like online, like what are your thoughts like on that? Barbell work? Mm. Um. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Luckily, if you have all the gym equipment in the world, I probably wouldn't do a whole lot of barbell work. Mm. Um, not that I'm, uh, not that I'm anti-barbell. I think I have a group of people that work out at home. They do a lot of barbell work because that's a really good opportunity for us to use heavier loads. Um, I think as a coach, it's important for you to ask yourself, what is the, what can I do? What is the best I can do to give this person the best chance to doing this close enough to correct that we can tinker after I see a form video. So as a coach, putting a lot of work into your form videos that you give your clients, making them, you know, it's funny when I was doing a lot of this research into what other coaches were doing, I would watch what they would do in form videos. And and I'd say, okay, how are they, are are they communicating how to set up the cable? Are they communicating what to think about? Are they communicating the cues? Or are they just showing a 16 second clip of them doing the exercise and they say, go. And so I think that wouldn't be the way I would go, especially for more complex movement. Um, 
And so I think doing the work as the coach, asking and looking inward and saying, what can I do to, to give them the best shot at being able to do this? And then I also think using regressions, I'll never, ever, ever program a barbell back squat first. I will always program a heel elevated goblet squat or something that they are more likely to be able to, ex- a box squat, something that they're more likely to be able to execute well. I'll probably never execute a stiff-legged RDL. I'll pro- First, I'll probably program a bent knee RDL because most people are going to find a bent knee RDL technique to be a little bit more natural. Um, I probably won't program, um, you know, a Bulgarian split squat first. I'll probably program a stationary reverse lunge um, just as an opportunity to say, hey, okay, maybe we're going to work up to this thing. I'm not going to program a, a sissy squat first, you know, like um, we'll pick what we would call like neurologically complex, like less neurologically complex movements, less exercises that need less coordination. Um, I think that that's a really good way to go. I think a lot of my first mesocycle in my group programming, we did goblet squats because, and you could, you could argue, you could make a physiological argument that goblet squats or any front loaded squat could be suboptimal because it can be limited by like what you can just hold in your, like up on your chest or up on your shoulders. Usually that is the limiting factor for very strong people, but I I couldn't in my heart program a barbell back squat. I've never seen any of you barbell back squat. I don't know if the majority of these people can barbell back squat. So I was like, how about we all just do a goblet squat and then we can move on from there. And so I think, you you know, you're a smart coach. You know that if you're feeling uncomfortable programming a barbell back squat, because you're like, shit, I don't even know if they can do this. Even if you have a kick-ass form video, Maybe you're like, okay, cool. I'll put the, I'll table that for a second and maybe we'll do a goblet squat for now. And let me pick some really easy to execute movements and then, you know, kind of slowly drip in some harder stuff as we go. Could we like, I mean, like sort of just want to get some like insight into like how you actually do your like group um, programming and, you know, what your, what are your thoughts um, that, you know, go into that? From a coach perspective or from a, like if you're how I program it or what it's like from a client perspective? From a coach perspective. From a coach perspective. Yeah. So you had, I had some thoughts. My following is 80% women. And so I thought, okay, um, how do you, how do you make a program that, do you make a program specifically for women or do you make a program that is very balanced? And, you know, that was, that was the first hurdle for me is like, and then what does a program specifically for women mean? You know, are we just doing glutes, you know, or it's like, everyone's like, oh, it's just glutes. Everyone just, just wants glutes. Of course not. Um, but I would say that, so for me, that, that was my first hurdle. And I thought, okay, the one thing that I will, that I will do to acknowledge that my following is mostly women is I won't do a lot of pecs, not no pecs. Cause I think doing some pecs both aesthetically and from a functional, like joint health perspective is a good idea, but we're not going to make it a pec focused program. So that was my first thought. Um, and then I had to go with a bunch of averages, you know, this is not one-on-one coaching. So I need to take a lot of what I know and do averages because that's, who's going to be joining this program. I have to imagine it is the average person of my following, not any specific person with a specific, you know, goal and a specific this. And so we're, we train four days a week for roughly 45 to 75 minutes. Um, which I think is again, in that like average for my following, uh, not necessarily the average for the average person. It might be less, but the average person who's actually trying to make some gains, which is the person I think is joining the group. So yeah. four days, about 45 to 75 minutes. Um, and a from a volume perspective, from a body part perspective, it's an it's a very balanced program. It's not a glute-focused program. It's not a delts-focused program. Just because at the minute you make it a specific focus, you're going to lose some people. Um, and I know that by not making it specifically focused, I will lose some people who do want it to, to be specifically focused, but that is a price I'm willing to pay. So it is a very balanced program. We do 
a roughly 50-50 split of upper and lower, you know, at least from an, an, an intent perspective of what we're trying to grow. Um, usually something like four to six exercises per day, usually between that six and 15 rep range. Um, when you say and, 50-50 split, what, what, what do you exactly mean by that? Yeah, it's right now it's an upper lower split. So we're doing oh, okay, upper okay. lower, upper lower. Okay. And if you look at just the, the general amount of volume across the whole program, it's if you were to look at this program and say, hey, what does this person care about most? You wouldn't be able to tell. You'd be like, well, they care about everything. They want to grow everything. And so that's kind of where we're coming from. Um, and I think for most people, for the majority of your training career, you never need a specific, a specific focus of a program. I think having a four-day split with a balanced program is going to be enough to grow everything for a very, very, very long time. Um, so I have to deal with that. There are going to be people that are like, well, I really want to do an, a third day of glutes. I'm like, okay, this is not the program for you. You know, I didn't program it that way. Um, and so that's okay. I I'm okay with that. I understand that they're going to be people, be people with more specific goals. Um, I'd say it's, it's on the moderate volume. I, I have seen other group programming that has quite low volume, maybe like one to two sets of stuff per day. I've seen other crazy high volume program. I'm sure you've seen that's like the majority of what you see is like eight exercises, four sets of each. It's not that kind of programming. We place a much higher emphasis on quality and efficiency. And what I mean is good technique, close to failure. Don't do more than we need to, to grow, get in, work hard, do it well and get out. Um, and that might be just me imprinting and projecting my own thoughts on my own training. I don't want to spend any more time in the gym than I have to. I enjoy the gym, yeah. but I want to get in. I want to execute movements. Well, I want to get close to failure. I want to get high quality tension. I want to get the volume that I need, but I'm not going to be in there for another half hour to get another 10% benefit. Mm. I, I want us to get the most by doing, not the most by doing the least, but I want to find that balance of efficiency for sure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how you like do it a group programming itself i mean just just a general question right you know like just your thoughts on like how would you program or how do you program like cardio and you know i mean this is obviously quite a loaded question because you know you know it takes into account like all your different like periodizations and all of that but i mean just like what are your thoughts on like cardio and how how do you actually like fit that into the whole program itself yeah, I don't is how I do it. I don't. And so <laughs> that's how you're 100% right. It's a loaded question, which is the same way of saying it's a loaded uh, it's a loaded task for the coach to communicate yeah. how you might want to do this when all of our cardio needs are going to be very different. Mm. Um, and so I don't. And if people are like, well, is there cardio on here? There isn't. Because the truth is like, personally, I think we can do without getting into each individual's specific needs, I think most people need to get more steps. And what I mean by steps, I don't give a shit if it's steps or biking or swimming or rowing or whatever it is. People need to move more. And so I think without being so specific of you need to do 30 minutes on the elliptical, when, when, when you program something like that, I think you give people a false understanding of this being, when I say this, I mean dedicated minutes on a treadmill or something. You give them a false understanding that that is uniquely special. Yeah. That, that doing... 12 minutes of hit is, has a unique, a very unique benefit um, outside of, well, what if I just went for a walk or what if I just went for, you know, if I just counted my steps or what if I went for a bike ride? Like, and the truth is that if we equate the amount of movement, there really isn't that much difference. Now there's a little difference in intensity. If you do higher intensity cardio and lower intensity cardio, there's a difference between those two. But man, again, we have to come from this a general perspective because I don't know who's joining the group. I would rather get every person on planet earth to eight to 12,000 steps 
If we could, before we talk about fucking any type of cardio or when you do it before or after training, oh. can we get everybody there? And so when someone's like, hey, I'm not gonna program cardio, I'm like, listen, you're gonna get 90% of the benefit of just getting eight to 12,000 steps a day. Um, however you like doing it, whatever you like doing. And if you put, if you ask me, Jordan, if I get 10,000 steps and I lift weights rigorously four times a week in your hypertrophy program, how much cardiovascular slash health benefits am I missing out by not doing dedicated high intensity cardio? Oh, probably, probably next to nothing. Like what I'm saying is that by walking and being active, getting 10,000 steps, let's say eight to eight to 12, however you like, and lifting weights rigorously where you, you are getting your heart rate up and you are doing something high intensity, not, not jumping and sweating, but taking sets close to failure. Your heart is amazingly, amazingly healthy. You are like, people think of like, I need to do cardio for cardiovascular heart benefits. No, you need to be active and you need to do something that, that taxes your body and is hard. Lifting covers a lot of that. I'm not saying it's exactly the same. And when I say lifting, I mean lifting and walking. And I would say walking, it could be any form of cardio, whatever, covers a lot of bases. So a lot of people are like, what should I do for cardio? I'm like, whatever you like. It's funny because when someone asked me how many steps that I should, we should get or they should get, um, the answer, what is the point of getting steps? Why, are we, why do we care? The point is so you can have a healthy heart and so that you can use activity as a form of weight moderation. Like there is, that is a fact. Yes, we're, we don't like, you and I, I'm sure both aren't like, yeah, like count how many calories you're burning and specifically burn this many. We're not thinking about that. But the truth is, yeah, you, we want to be moving because it is part of what makes weight maintenance or weight loss easier. And so you should get an amount of steps that when you look at all the other things you do in your life for your cardiovascular health, so lifting, let's say, or running or not having too much body fat, not smoking, not drinking too much, all that stuff, that you have a healthy heart. And so that's number one. And you should get enough steps that allows you to maintain or, or achieve the, the body composition goal that you currently have. And that's usually in the eight to 12,000 range-ish. So this is even for, I mean, even for like one-to-one clients, um, this is also something Slightly different, I guess. Yeah, slightly yeah. different. I, I I would be more specific with the step count, but equally non-specific about the way that they're getting that. Um, the only time I would be a bit more specific about how a client is getting steps is if they run into a weight loss plateau and they're already getting quite a bit of steps. You know, we might look at that and say, well, maybe you've become a little bit efficient at this exercise and maybe for the amount you're moving, you're not getting a really great return calorie wise as you were maybe a year ago when you started this or two years ago or five years ago. Um, we do become more efficient at whatever we do often. And so I think that most people don't need to worry about that. But if you do run into a scenario where you're, where you're already doing a decent amount of steps and it's not, doesn't seem to be working, I might just, and, and I don't even know if this is, actually physiologically, oh, I've, I, I've given them, you know, two days of higher intensity, one day of hit, two days of slow walking. I don't even know if calorie wise, that's actually doing something. There might be a placebo or an enjoyment perspective that kicks in that they work harder now across the board. And there's a confounding variable there, but I've, I've found that that works sometimes, but with, even with online coaching clients, we're going to do steps and we're going to get those steps in a way that you enjoy. And the step count that we give you is going to be something that reflects what you can realistically attain, but also push you a little bit to maybe do a little bit more. I think that there's some element of like, 
it would be real easy to get 6,000, but we're probably going to push you to a little bit more than that. Yeah, for sure. All right. That, that was really interesting. Um, I didn't expect that, but it's cool to know. Um, I, I mean, I want to like just pick your brain a little bit. I know we're coming up on like the one hour mark. So I also want to be like, you know, respectful of your time since it's like super early for you there. Um, but, you know, I just want to, your thoughts on like, you know, I mean, this is a very selfish question. So everybody who's listening, it's more for me. <laughs> I don't care. Um, so, you know, like what are your, I don't know, any like sort of advice for like anyone that's trying to like grow, you know, your sort of like business and, you know, even like your knowledge in this space, right? And your influence, like how, how, how would you have like done it again? Or what would you do now, you know, if you were in the shoes of someone like starting out um, in the space right now? Yeah, it's definitely a three-pronged approach, I think. Number one is is getting down and dirty and coaching people. And even if you're not even if you don't feel like you are the most confident and skilled coach in the world, if you're listening out there and you you have a bit of this like imposter syndrome, you're like don't have this big belief that you know what you're doing, you still can do like most people that you need to help, most people on earth that need your help don't need to know what you think you need to know. Like you probably already know what you need to know to help people. Um, if you go on social media, you're going to be led to believe that you need to know exactly what the arm path should be for the clavicular head of the pec and that you absolutely need to know um, how to reverse metabolic adaptation or, you know, you're going to think you need to know a lot of this stuff when the average person doesn't know shit and really needs your guidance and your support and an understanding of energy balance and that they should be more active and a check-in schedule, some external accountability. Like, so number one is like get out there and coach people and stop with the imposter syndrome because most, most up and coming coaches already know enough about physiology to, to help the average person. Maybe not everyone, maybe there are people that have more ambitious goals and you're like, I'm not qualified yet to, to do that. But I'd say the average person who wants to get in shape and get healthier and improve their health, like you, most people already, most coaches who are, you you already, whether this is you or not, you already care enough, I can tell, because you're asking the question. And so if, you, if you're the kind of coach who's already thinking about this, they care about whether or not they're ready, I already know you know enough to help the average person. So that's number one is don't get, don't be afraid to get out there and coach people. You're going to learn a lot more in, in the trenches, so to speak, like <laughs> with clients. Um, you know, when we talk about my answer for cardio and steps, I've tried prescribing cardio. I've tried done. I've tried a lot of different methods mm. and I find that I have by far the best results when people feel like they're getting steps in a way that they enjoy, where people feel better about taking their dog for a walk or going for a walk on their treadmill while they're at work or, you know, going to, you know, go for a swim or a bike ride or something. They feel better when they can choose things that they enjoy versus me being like, you got to do three times, 30 minutes, you know, and, and there are other clients who like doing that. And so you only learn that kind of stuff by doing it. So that's number one. Number two is definitely what you kind of maybe alluded to is like continuing education. So investing money. And, and I think that is where a lot of people get tripped up. They're like, wow, this is, this is an expensive course or something like that. The, the money that you will make it will pay back. It will pay you back. If you spend, you know, I, I did the N1 courses. They're like two, $2,000. I did the MNU course. It's like $2,000. It's not cheap. Um, totally. But there's a reason that the, they are, they are in my opinion, in the top tier of whatever they teach. And so I think not being afraid to invest money in yourself now, um, if you're frugal now, then it will stunt your growth a little bit. I think, I think it's something that is 
whatever. I don't know anybody's monetary situation. I don't want to assume, but I think it's something that deserves a strong consideration. Uh, if you have the money, spend it on yourself, on self-growth here. I think that's very important um, for sure. And the third thing is to put yourself out there on social media. And so there's something super special about trying to teach something. It reinforces your learning and it practices being able to digest it and chew it up and spit it out for other people. Yeah. Just posting every single day about something. And I'm not even talking about growing an account. I'm talking about just the act of having to put your thoughts into words and yeah. having to put it into words that you think that your target audience will understand. Um, that by itself is such a learning experience because you might want to do a post on um, why salt, why you might want to have electrolytes or something like that. And you might struggle to kind of put it into words. And so maybe you have to do a little research and you have to look into it yourself and you have to, you know, write down some copy and be like, okay, this sounds good. And going through that process, I have to say, I've learned just about, just about as much externally from courses as I have internally from trying to make content. Um, and so those three things, coaching people, investing in continuing education and con being consistent and, and putting content out, um, massively, massively helpful, specifically in terms of like growing a business, like growing your account. Um, I think one of the best things that someone told me was quality matters. Your content being good matters, but quantity probably matters more in this context. And what I mean is like the difference between your best post that took you three days to make and a decent post that took you 30 minutes to make are probably not that far apart, but you could have made 10 posts that were pretty good. And so I would say that that would be a strategy that I would pass on. It's like make pretty good content, make good content, but don't spend a week making one post because it's going to be a little bit better than you could have made five pretty decent posts and shown up more in people's feed and all this shit. Okay, awesome. Thanks for the, the wisdom. I will definitely, you know, <laughs> writing all those things down and be applying them. Um, cool. So... I mean, do you want to like sort of give everybody, you know, where to find information, where to find you and all of that? Sure. I'm mostly on Instagram I, uh, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I have a podcast as well uh, where Optimal Meets Practical. We do a little bit on YouTube, um, but Instagram is the best place to find me. If you need me for anything, I answer all DMs. So you could just shoot me a DM and we can chat. Yes, I know. I know that for a fact because he answered my DM. Uh, <laughs> Okay, very cool. So I will link everything that you mentioned um, in the show notes. And yeah, thanks again for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, cool. All right, that wraps it up for this episode of the DFITZO podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please leave a five-star review if you haven't already. They help a lot more than you know. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Shoot me a DM on Instagram. I would love to connect or jump in my inbox. I'm going to link all of these things below so you know how to reach me. I'd love to get connected with you and help you out in any way that I can. All right, that's it from me. Have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you soon.